Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Bridget Wagner. I direct coalition relations here at the Heritage Foundation and on behalf of my colleagues here at Heritage and our co-host um, at the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute, including our co-host on the stage today, Laurel, I want to welcome you to our uh, monthly Conservative Women's Network lunch. Um, today we're very pleased and honored to have a very distinguished speaker with us. Um, and especially so in this particular week. It's been a very important week in terms of the United States taking a strong moral stand in the fight against ISIS. On Monday, the United States House of Representatives unanimously passed a resolution that condemned the campaign against Christians and other religious minorities in the Middle East as crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. The resolution called on all governments to do the same, and yesterday, Secretary John Kerry officially recognized that ISIS is waging a genocide against Yazidis, Christians, and Shiites in the areas under its control. This is only the second time in the United States government history that they have condemned an ongoing genocide, and there was some doubt that the United States government would include Christians in this declaration. The Heritage Foundation's Daily Signal has been covering this issue, and our colleagues have been writing um, about this uh, for several months. Today, we have a real tireless warrior uh, for this cause. Um, she's been tireless in helping to document the Christian genocide, and she has worked tirelessly to help educate the public, the media, our lawmakers, and government leaders on these atrocities. Nina Shea is the director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute. She's worked as an international human rights lawyer for more than 30 years. In this role, she works to advance individual religious freedom and other human rights in US foreign policy as it confronts an ascendant Islamic extremism as well as nationalist and remnant communist regimes. She undertakes scholarship and advocacy in defense of those persecuted for their religious beliefs and identities. And on behalf of diplomatic measures, to end religious repression and violence abroad. Nina has served seven terms as a commissioner on the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. During the Soviet era, her first client before the United States, uh, before the United Nations, was Soviet Nobel Peace Laureate Andrei Sakharov. Since then, she's been appointed as the US delegate to the UN's main human rights body, both by Republican and Democratic administrations. She served as a member of the Clinton administration's Advisory Committee on Religious Freedom Abroad. And in 2009, she was appointed to serve as a member of the US National Commission to UNESCO. Nina's played a leading role in building grassroots support for the adoption of the International Religious Freedom Act. And for seven years, she helped organize and lead a coalition of churches and religious groups that work to end a religious war against non-Muslims and dissident Muslims in southern Sudan. In 2014, she initiated and helped lead a coalition of hundreds of prominent American religious leaders to issue their Pledge of Solidarity for Persecuted Iraqi, Syrian, and Egyptian Christians and other minorities, which was released by a bipartisan congressional panel on May 7th. And in the summer of 2014, she met with Pope Francis to discuss the persecution of Christians in the Middle East. As you can see, Nina works across a broad range of persecuted religious minorities uh, in the world to their benefit. She has also testified 
and she advises Congress regularly on all of these issues. I would encourage everyone to check out the Hudson Institute uh, website. I've just skimmed, just briefly skimmed, given you a glimpse of her many accomplishments. And there you'll find links to her other writings as well. Um, in a radio interview Nina had just yesterday, after the announcement of this genocide declaration, she noted this is an inc incredibly uh, critical uh, first step, very important, but it's just a step. As Secretary Kerry pointed out in his remarks yesterday, the stakes in this campaign are utterly existential. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming a real leader in this fight, Nina Shea, as she updates on ISIS's Christian genocide and the challenges for U.S. policy ahead. Thank you so much, Bridget. And it's great to be here at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank Heritage, and I want to thank the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute for inviting me here today. When they did, uh, we had no idea it was going to be such a momentous week for this precise topic of Christian genocide in the Middle East. Uh, yesterday, at 9 a.m. Eastern, Secretary Kerry took the podium at the State Department, and he asserted, quote, in my judgment, Daesh, which is another word for ISIS, is responsible for genocide against groups in areas under its control, including Yazidis, Christians, and Shia Muslims. Daesh is genocidal by self-proclamation, by ideology, and by actions in what it says, what it believes, and what it does. So that is uh, the official U.S. designation. He went on to give a, a a, a talk about that, and I encourage you to look it up. But it is an, a, a genocide designation that is historic, surprising, important, and possibly of utmost significance. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Um, it is, as Bridget said, only the second time in U.S. history where the U.S. has designated genocide while it was still going on. The other time was when Secretary Colin Powell uh, designated Darfur as a genocide. So genocide um, has a precise definition in international law under the Convention on Genocide, and it is harmful acts committed with uh, um, killings and other harmful acts committed with the intent to destroy um, all or part of a group. Um, a religious group, for example, or a national group or an ethnic group. Um, ongoing means uh, two, uh, has two important implications. Um, it means that you don't want to wait till millions are slaughtered, like we saw with Europe's Jew Jews under um, the Nazi period. Six million Jews, two-thirds of that population were killed. Um, so we want to act to prevent it from getting to those numbers. Um, we want to uh, protect those victims early on in what we think is a developing genocide. It also means, because it's ongoing, that the data is soft. Because it's ongoing, it's not easy to run around um, with, uh, in the war zone, uh, conflicts raging. Uh, this ISIS is still there in Iraq and Syria at the crime scene. Um, the, there are huge flows, massive flows of refugees, um, so it's hard to get testimony. But we do know enough. In fact, we know too much. Um, the Knights of Columbus uh, this week 
released, I guess it was last week, released this report. And um, that's on their website, kfc.org. And it has thousands, over thousands of names of, over a thousand names of Christians who have been killed or raped or tortured um, because they are Christian. We believe it's only the tip of the iceberg. Um, I'm constantly hearing new cases that are not in this report. Um, I was just talking to Washington's Cardinal McCarrick last week. He has just gotten back from Iraq, touring the refugee camps. And he told me that a woman came up to him and told him that, um, it's not in this book, uh, not in this report, uh, that she saw her husband crucified on the door of their home. Um, I work also for um, a Foundation for Relief and Re Reconciliation in the Middle East, the Ken and Andrew White's organization. You may have heard of, of it, wonderful foundation, does um, is right now supporting refugees from Iraq in Jordan. And it seems like every family that we're helping now um, has a story. I'm thinking of Georgina. She's a young gal. She left Iraq, uh, Nineveh, when ISIS came in. And um, she left in a car with her grandmother. Her parents and her three brothers left in the other car. They never arrived. Only she and her grandmother arrived in Jordan. The, she doesn't know what happened to her family. No doubt they were murdered by ISIS on the way out as they were fleeing. Um, there are mass graves in Sinjar. That's where the Yazidi area is in uh, Nineveh. Um, but there also were three Orthodox churches there. Nobody knows what happened to those congregations. There's speculation that some are in those graves. Some were seen to being taken by ISIS to Mosul, which meant that they would either be killed or enslaved as a, for sexual abuse. Um, there's mass graves in Sadad, Syria. Um, all these names are not in this report. What I'm trying to emphasize is that uh, we have only the tip of the iceberg because it is an ongoing genocide. Uh, we learned last summer that there was a Protestant pastor in, um, outside of Aleppo who was crucified for refusing to recant his faith. So was his 12-year-old son after his son's fingertips were cut off by ISIS. They both were crucified. Um, ISIS, these are a few examples. We think of ISIS as sh sort of showing up on the scene in August 2014 or June for 2014, that summer. But in fact, ISIS got its start as Al-Qaeda in Iraq in 04. Uh, it, changes, it, it morphed into something called Islamic State of Iraq in 06. Uh, Al-Baghdadi, who heads ISIS now, headed I IC, this Islamic State in Iraq, starting in 2010. In 2011, it was put on the US, he was put on the U.S. terrorist list, and then, in, uh, of course, in Nineveh in 14, uh, they turn up. Uh, so here's eight years between the start of ISI and ISIS in 14, and all that time, this group has been raping, torturing, and murdering, particularly targeting Christians um, as, a, as a main civilian target. And... Um, one of the biggest ways they did attack Christians is by taking hostages for ransom. And this is really a silent one-by-one one genocide. Um, thousands, I think thousands of Christians have been taken for uh, ransom. And um, many of them have been tortured and killed. Bishops have been killed while trying to redeem priests. 
priests have been killed while trying to uh, redeem their members of their congregation who have been taken uh, hostage. Wives have been killed as they bring the ransom money for their husbands. Hostages have been killed even after the ransom is paid. And this has been going on all this time. One of my um, close friends from Iraq, his father Douglas Bazi, you may have seen him. He's been featured in the Knights of Columbus ads on TV. He was also in town last week. Um, he himself was taken hostage and tortured and beaten, shot in the leg. Uh, they came at him with hammers, broke his teeth, broke his nose, broke his back, and finally he was released with ransom. Entire towns have been taken captive um, in Syria. There are 200 Christians um, now captive from Karyatane, Syria. Um, their church pays um, ransom for them to keep them alive. 20 of them escaped recently. Uh, there was another uh, group of towns, dozen towns, taken captive uh, for ransom. The, uh, last year, the final one, um, hostages in that case were released a couple weeks ago, a year later. Um, they, uh, ex the ISIS executed three of them, dressed them in orange jumpsuits, made a video of their execution to get more, wring more money out of the Assyrian church. They were demanding $23 million for the release of those hostages, far beyond the ability of that church. Um, as a result, in ISIS territory, there's no, no church, no priest or pastor, no intact Christian congregation anywhere in ISIS control. Um, this genocide uh, designation by the U.S. government was welcome, but it was a surprise. Because since October, uh, the United States State Department has been uh, giving indications that it's willing to designate the Yazidis' uh, religion as victims of genocide, but not the Christians. And the Yazidis have certainly suffered tremendously. Thousands of their women are still enslaved. Um, this continued throughout the fall, this reluctance um, to, or really unwillingness to, to also um, include the Christians. Congressman uh, Jeff Fortenberry, a Republican from Nebraska, who um, introduced the, the um, resolution that passed on money that Bridget referred to, uh, unanimously passed on genocide against Christians, Yazidis, and other groups. Uh, Jeff, who, who, by the way, uh, is district, houses the largest Yazidi population in the United States, he asked on February 25th Secretary Kerry if they were going to include the Christians in the genocide designation, which by that time was mandated by Congress to be made yesterday, um, March 17th. And Secretary Kerry on February 24th said to the congressman, quote, they are not killing them, but it's a removal. Now, I can't think of a, a more cautious, neutral, in fact, misleading term than a removal, but that he was referring to the Christians uh, and what the experience was with ISIS. March 16th, one day before this deadline, uh, the State Department held an announcement, a public announcement, that it was still undecided and they were not going to make the March 17th deadline. So it was pretty apparent that they were resistant to it. Um, and the reason why they explained at some points um, is that ISIS didn't have an intent to kill or destroy the Christian communities. Um, 
and that it actually respected Christians and Jews as people of the book, um, meaning uh, people of the Bible. So this is, of course, um, Islamic tradition, um, calling Christians and Jews people of the book. ISIS does not um, follow Islamic tradition. It does not want to coexist peacefully um, with Christians or non-Muslims. Uh, and by the way, this was repeated in today's story in the New York Times about the Kerry genocide designation yesterday, about how State Department officials said, well, the Christians you know, really had a different deal here. Uh, and the implication all along has been that if the Christians just paid an Islamic tax, a jizya that ISIS was offering them, then the Christians um, could have stayed and lived happily ever after in their homes. But the Christians refused, and they chose to leave. Um, this is a phenomenal misconception. It's um, partly based on lack of knowledge. There was no, um, the State Department uh, did not send out fact-finding teams to the region to find out exactly what was going on with the Christians. Colin Powell did when he was Secretary of State. He sent teams to Darfur. Um, in fact, the Knights of Columbus in their report used, they went to um, the region and used the, to gather their facts and they used the same questionnaire that the Powell teams used. Um, we, uh, a group of us, about 30 um, experts and Christian leaders from Cardinal Whirl uh, to uh, an expert from um, the Center for American Progress on the left, I mean, all, a whole uh, array of Christian leaders signed a, a letter asking um, Secretary Kerry for a meeting so that they could come in and brief him about the situation. That was on December 4th. We never got an answer. Um, one month before the deadline for genocide designation, the State Department did go to the Knights of Columbus because they had been running these ads on TV and asked them to um, collect the facts and present it to them in a report, which is what the report did. Um, however, without waiting for the findings to come back to them, uh, they visited, the State Department officials went around visiting Chaldean Catholic bishops from Iraq and telling them that genocide was out of the question. Um, so the State Department did not have any interviews of Christian leaders directly dealing with ISIS over this Islamic tax issue. Uh, and again, this is the pivotal issue about whether ISIS intended to destroy uh, Christians as it did Yazidis under the definition, to meet the definition of the Genocide Convention. So I did interview uh, the Syriac Catholic priest who had dealings with um, ISIS, Father Emmanuel, and he told me something quite interesting. He said ISIS demanded that they all, the men, the adult Christian men left in Mosul in uh, July 14, um, come to an auditorium and meet with them to learn the terms which what ISIS expected of them. So the, the, the males, the Christian men, decided that, that it was a trap, that they could be, uh, they were being rounded up for slaughter. And in the best of scenarios, if they didn't get killed, that ISIS would, um, they didn't trust ISIS to protect their women and girls. Now, of course, no one protects, uh, uh, trusts ISIS, not even the State Department, except on this issue. 
They thought the insinuation was the U.S. should have, the um, Christians should have taken up taken this deal. Um, the concerns of these Christian leaders were um, validated just a short time later. A dozen Christian women and girls were taken as slaves. They have not been seen since. The church has tried to ransom them and has not succeeded. Thousands of Yazidi women and girls have also been taken um, by ISIS. And then, and that was a couple, uh, about a month later. Then, um, in October, ISIS released a, a slave price list, um, actually giving out prices um, of sa sale prices for these slaves. And, and in, in the price list, not only is the amount of money uh, designated and the age, but also Christian Yazidi, that these were the slaves that were being sold. Um, so instead of learning about the situation, the State Department seemed to take, and, and some still in the department leaking it to the New York Times today, seemed to still take uh, ISIS propaganda at face value. Um, the State Department, I want to point out the State Department's own um, I should say propaganda on this issue of um, Christian attacks and Islamic attacks paid by Christians to peacefully coexist with ISIS. Um, of course, you know, this is preposterous. We've all seen the beheading videos. ISIS does not want to coexist with Christians. Uh, the State Department's own coordinator for counterterrorism, um, who worked for Secretary Kerry until a year ago, uh, his name is Ambassador Alberto Fernandez. He wrote um, a, a study of the jizya under ISIS, and he said that it's a caliphate publicity stunt. It's a, an a ploy for further atrocities. It's, it has serves two purposes. It mantles, it, it makes al-Baghdadi look more caliph-like because he's mimicking the caliph of old, um, and it, it allows them to either... Um, forcibly convert Christians or to keep the women around for rape or uh, forcible marriage to their fighters or to extract more money from um, their patriarchs who are in other cities and have international um, financial networks. This genocide declaration yesterday is extremely important. It's important because of the moral power of it. It is the crime of crimes, is the most heinous of all human rights um, crimes. And um, it, this is reflected, reflected in the fact that it really gives a moral boost to the, um, the people who have been des designated, the Christians, the Yazidis, and the uh, Shia, the ethnic Shia. In fact, today I received um, a video thanking the United States from Father Bazi and the children in his camp. It was really quite wonderful to receive that. But they're following it very, very closely. And they feel, until now, forgotten. Here is their Christian civilization, 2,000 years old, wiped out by a force of hatred that has not been seen before. I mean, their churches, every church, every trace of their civilization is being systematically destroyed by ISIS. And these are churches and monasteries that have stood through 1,300 years of caliphates of the past. 
They have withstood the invasions of the Romans, the Mongols, the Arabs, the Turks, the Persians, and so forth. But um, they cannot withstand this, at least not alone. And this needs to be recognized. Now, it can be even more significant, it could be of utmost significance, this designation, if there is a policy roadmap adopted by the administration. And it has to be put in place now. Not only is the situation extremely dire on the ground, both in Syria and Iraq, but um, the government here is in transition, or it will soon be in transition, and we'll lose a year before, uh, between the lame duck and the uh, sort of learning curve of the new administration. So what can be done? What should be these policy, in the policy roadmap? Um, there's judicial actions, and Secretary Kerry um, alludes to that. He refers to it and says he's going to start preserving evidence and collecting evidence, and that a court, this is the business of a court, and that they should take this up. So you know, the, this is something that um, will be directed against those who aid or abet cyber, you know, ISIS, cyber recruiters, financiers, arms suppliers, artifact smugglers, all of these, these uh, accomplices really um, could be um, someday uh, caught and, and tried. There's also military action, and again, Secretary Kerry um, alludes to that as well and talks about how um, they are um, have an eye to the protection of these minority communities that have been named victims of genocide by liberating their occupied territory, by, by freeing them of ISIS. And he names Nineveh in particular in Iraq and also parts of Syria. And the U.S. is engaged in that already. Um, but there's other actions that Secretary Kerry himself can take that is in his own uh, portfolio as um, the head of the State Department. And he should adopt these and, and put them in action. I'm going to discuss them quickly because um, time, our time together is short and I want to answer any questions. But here are just five examples. First is refugee resettlement visas to the United States. Now, Christians from Syria have been grossly underrepresented in the numbers resettled in the United States. They formed, uh, they constituted about 10% of the Syrian population before the war, and there have been um, only 60 Christians and one Yazidi over five years of Syria's conflict who have gotten uh, visas to the United States to resettle here. Um, in the first quarter of this year, of fiscal year, 16, uh, starting in October, there have been six Christians and no Yazidis. And this is all on the State Department's own database. They have a published database and it lists the religion. Um, this is a year when we're bringing in 10,000 um, refugees from Syria. So 60 Christi six Christians this year, that's about one family and, and zero Yazidis. In Iraq, most of the Christians and Yazidis are displaced in Iraqi Kurdistan. All those years of terror, deliberate targeted terror against the Christians, pushed them north into Nineveh. So most of the Christians um, of Iraq were in Nineveh when ISIS attacked. The remaining in, in Iraq were in Nineveh. Now that most of them are in Iraqi Kurdistan, as are the Yazidis. And they have no resettlement rights. They're technically not refugees because they're within their own country, yet they cannot resettle in Kurdistan. 
Uh, they don't have rights to drive a car, open a bank account, um, have a, you know, start a business. So uh, there has to be some kind of plan for them, for many of them. Uh, many of them are too traumatized to ever go back to their homes. And, and in the events that their lands are not liberated by, from ISIS, because that's still a question, um, they will all have to be resettled in the West because there's really nowhere in the region for them to go. Uh, second thing would be land and property restitution. So these minorities lost their homes, businesses, and farms to ISIS, but ISIS has, in many cases, passed them on to other people, either selling them or giving them away. So now other people are uh, to have possession of them. And the State Department must press these governments in involved, uh, their governments, uh, to give priority recognition uh, to the titles of these genocide victims. And that's something that we have to press for, for them to do. Uh, another item would be uh, a place at the peace table. There are peace talks going on in Syria right now, and there is no Christian voice in, um, uh, in those peace talks. They are not at the table. So borders are going to be re redrawn, constitutions are going to be drafted, and there's absolutely uh, no place or no voice there, no input, and these minorities will be marginalized um, or shut out of whatever replaces the old Syria. Uh, we've got to speak up for them. Uh, humanitarian aid. Uh, there, there's donor fatigue setting in. The, the minorities cannot go into UN camps because they're too dangerous for them. The persecution that has driven them out of their homes follows them into these camps. There's no Christian in a camp in Jordan run by the UN. These are Syri mostly uh, Iraqi and, and Syrian Christians in Jordan. And um, there, the UN has large camps. Probably the second largest city of Jordan is probably a UN refugee camp. And there's not a single Christian there um, because it's so dangerous. So uh, they're dependent on private aid and church aid, and the US government really must ensure that these genocide victims are not shortchanged. Finally, reconstruction aid. Um, I say finally, that's my list of five. There are many more things that can be done. But if and, do, if and when they do return to their homes after the defeat of ISIS, these genocide victims will need help in reconstructing their homes, their towns, their churches. And America's reconstruction aid to Iraq after the military surge was largely diverted away from the Christian areas by national and local governments. And the US government must recognize the specific challenges facing these minorities and provide greater, more direct, more transparent, and more oversight, more transparency and more oversight um, on their behalf. Uh, Secretary Kerry said, what Dash wants to erase, we must preserve. And that cannot be made a reality unless these steps are taken. So um, in his announcement today, Secretary Kerry um, took the pains to say, uh, took pains to point out that uh, he is not a judge or a prosecutor jury and that a judicial and legal formal procedure is going to be needed. But he has taken a bold step, and there are things that he can do, and we're going to need all of your help to get it done. Thank you. Okay.
So we have some time for uh, questions. We have a couple of microphones in the room, and I would just ask if you could raise your hand and wait for the microphone so that it can be captured um, on the recording. Um, and identify yourself, and if you wouldn't mind giving your affiliation as well. So we're ready for a, a question right here in the front. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm at Claire Booth Lewis Policy Institute, an intern semester. Um, my question would be, I guess I have more than one, one question. What, how do we get involved with this, and why do you think it took so long for them to recognize Christians over to other, I can't even pronounce it, Yazidi, Yazidi, yeah, yeah. How did, uh, say it again, how did we get involved uh, in? How do you think we should, as, you know, students and oh, students get, okay. able to get involved and try and help, and how, why do you think it took so long to recognize the Christians? Well, um, the United States Department. yeah, I think that, you know, the students can do a lot, and everybody can do a lot, because of we have um, the, the internet. <laughs> and so we will be putting up petitions and doing uh, conferences and campaigns and letter writing and contacting your congressman. It, because this was so unexpected, we don't have a whole set um, of action points right now. When I say we, I mean a coalition um, of activists. And, um, I, you know, I've worked all my life to, to achieve um, successes in this field, and it was been done through uh, working with others, teams of others, um, coalitions. So um, look on my website at, at hudson.org under my name, Nina Shea, and um, I write for National Review quite frequently, and we'll often put in those pieces um, links to more information, links to petitions that we need signatures for. We Just until um, yesterday, we had a, a petition, the Knights of Columbus did a petition um, that got over 140,000 signatures, including a lot of uh, dignitaries. And that was part of the pressure, too, because all of this builds pressure. There was the, um, the Fortenberry Amendment that, that passed unanimously on Monday. That built pressure. There was this uh, press conference we had last week with the Knights of Columbus to present its report. That builds pressure. The European Parliament in January passed, with strong socialist report, uh, support, uh, a resolution also calling for the designation of genocide, or designating, for the, on behalf of the European Parliament, designating genocide for Christians, Yazidis, and other uh, minorities in, in this region under ISIS. So um, all of that was building pressure, and that's why there was this delay, or I think the State Department would have just simply declared a genocide against Yazidis back in October, and um, that would have been the end of it. And that would have been very hurtful for those other minorities, um, the Shia ethnic groups and the Christians, because basically by in selecting one, you're excluding the others by implication. Um, why, why, why are they reluctant to do it? Uh, there's layers of reasons given, and one was this ostensible reason that they say, and they told the New York Times today, that it's because they didn't think ISIS, you know, they think ISIS respects Christians as people of the book, is basically their stated reason. Um, the uh, second layer may be that um, 
they don't want to um, uh, feed enemy propaganda that this is a crusader war by sticking up for Christians. Now, that was, interestingly enough, the finding of the Holocaust Museum regarding the Nazi Holocaust, that the reason why President Roosevelt did not single out the Jews for um, concern, for American concern at the time, was that he did not want to feed anti-Semitic propaganda that the United States was only acting on behalf of the Jews. And that was absolutely catastrophic, as we saw. And ships of refugees were turned away at that time. And you know, there's a lot of parallels. And, but we're trying to head this off before everybody's you know, killed, frankly. Um, so I mean, those are, those are a couple reasons. Any questions or questions? Hi, my name is Brooke. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I agree that uh, designating something as genocide really adds a big moral dimension to it. So I'm wondering, what are the consequences if the government actually doesn't act upon <laughs> upon this designation? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That really gets to the core of activism, <laughs> because I think that you know, in a democracy, um, and in an election year. Um, there will be response. I mean, that's the beauty of democracy and elections. There's political pressure from the grassroots, and that's all of us. And um, if we choose to use our rights in this democracy. And so I think that if there is a good idea, I mean, and we had the facts on our side. We had the advantage of having the facts on our side. Once you have that and they're irrefutable, um, then the government's... Um, individual actors, uh, not just you know, some big bureaucracy, but Secretary Kerry or President Obama or you know, S Ambassador Samantha Power, who wrote a book on, on genocide. She wrote the, you know, the the, literally wrote the book on genocide and US policy. I mean, they're not going to want to risk their reputations to go down in history saying that they did nothing. They, you know, it's a it's a path, um, a, you know, a, a path that they're being that they're traveling down. Once you call it genocide, there's no going back. Then you would say, well, why didn't you do it? I mean, it, you know, I I was I'm dismayed by all the the media coverage seems to emphasize that well there are no legal requirements, and the reason why the media is saying that is because that's what this some of the uh, um, unidentified State Department officials are saying that there's no legal requirements to take any action. Well, there may not be legal requirements, um, but there certainly are moral requirements. And there is not um, necessarily, uh, and I'm not even, I'm not advocating a military involvement or troops on the ground, which is what some have been whispering. The Economist wrote about that a couple weeks ago, that, wow, this would mean troops on the ground, some, some policies, analysts say. No, I'm not advocating that at all. I think that would be counterproductive. But I do, um, I do see these other things we can do to rescue the minorities by giving them refugee status or by making sure they have a place at the peace talks so that they can say what they're, what they're going to need to stay, you know, what, what kind of laws they want, uh, what, freedom of religion, 
rights, equal rights. And Secretary Kerry in his talk references equal rights, and then they say that they're going to advocate them. Now what we've got to do is get more tactical and, and really say here's, here's the example of where it's needed. Maybe that's the religious identity line on the uh, national identity card. You want to take that out. You know, you want to press the government of Iraq, for example, to take that out because that's a tool for persecution, frankly, in, in that part of the world and any part of the world. Jim Phillips here, Heritage. Uh, hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, to me, one of the most stunning parts of your remarks is how few Syrian refugees, uh, or Sir Christian <laughs> refugees, have been accepted. I mean, even within uh, the, the body of, of Syrian refugees that have been accepted, they're t very underrepresented. It's like 1% right now for this quarter. Yeah, 1%. And to me, that's almost inexplicable in in the sense that one of the barriers to uh, accepting more has been the security question. You don't want to let in terrorists. But here we have uh, Syrians who have been victimized by terrorists, by uh, ISIS terrorists. And yet uh, our own government, in a sense, is, is victimizing them yet again. Uh, do you think this genocide designation will somehow prod the, uh, the bureaucracy to take action on this issue? or? Is there a role for Congress in writing, rewriting <laughs> some of the laws for refugees that could help some of these uh, Syrian and Iraqi Christians get out? Uh, yeah, in fact, there is legislation in the works now um, to uh, designate a certain number or percentage of those um, refugee slots to the minorities that have been designated as genocide victims from Syria. Um, and we have to, we're going to have to press them on everything because their approach right now, when I brought this to their attention last uh, fall, the State Department's uh, response has, has been, well, we've got to find out how many Christians want to apply, how many um, uh, are being turned away from applying or having a hard time applying. And I think that's the wrong approach because Certainly, um, there are more than six Christians at this time who want to come to the United States, who want to get out of Syria. There's certainly more than 60 over the last five years. There's certainly more than one Yazidi over the last five years. So um, we should start with the premise that there are others who want to, to apply, and um, we should go around the system we have in place. The system we have, and the whole problem here, the breakdown, is that these, um, the U.S. refugee referral system is done through the U.N. And the U.N. takes its refugees from the, their camps. And as I said, the camps are too dangerous for these minorities um, because they're victims of genocide, because they're targeted. Um, it's too dangerous for them to go there. So the U.N. has every incentive to ship out the people it's working to feed and, and um, you know, is crowded in their camps. And so that's who gets referred. And that's, um, that's who's being referred to other Western countries as well, not just us. So um, it's a very uh, pathetic situation. And it needs to be, uh, instead of interviewing refugees who, to, you know, some stranger going over there and interviewing them about, are you having problems with the UN? When the UN holds the keys to their future, they're not going to want to go on record 
um, not knowing who's even who's asking them this question, um, really attacking the UN because that's the only route out for them. Vicki Dutcher, Heritage. It seems to me that the grassroots is actually all in place in the churches. The Every church, and I'm a member of three at the moment, <laughs> living in Good three different places, but they all have missions. They feed people in this country. They do this for that country. They do all these missions. I have not heard one of my churches mention anything about the genocide or trying to get a groundswell of support to help. One, how would they proceed? And why are we not hearing from the Christian churches? That's an excellent question. You put your finger on one of the big problems with this. The, the grassroots are not active as they should be because there is um, the churches are not taking a lead in this to a large extent. <laughs> I mean, some are, so I don't want to say everyone isn't. But um, it, it, I often, in my own church, don't hear about this either. And we pray for victims of natural disasters and, um, you know, the... Um, you know the Ebola, the, the Ebola uh, disaster, and 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 never for this. So I, I don't really understand it. I do one one clue I got that was sort of an eye opener to me was that in um, that that a lot of their church leaders who are active have so many other issues on their plate that they can't make this their priority. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, that's, again, this shows exactly why the genocide designation is so critical, because then it does elevate it to a higher plane, uh, drawing, you know, demanding attention and action. So, I, I, again, you know, I hope you'll look at the Knights of Columbus report. I hope you'll go on my website and look at my own writings and follow it, and then uh, you'll get ideas about how you can take it to your three churches. That'd be great. And everybody here has networks, whether it's church, net, church networks or uh, family networks or community networks, and you can do the same thing. And, and it's just what we're talking about is electronic petitions or letter writing to, uh, you know, emails to your member of Congress. But we're going to make a, a, you know, a push for some of these action points, and we've got to do it fast, as I said, because the transition in Washington and the election is going to distract everybody. So we have just a very little window here. What are the committees in the Congress that we should be following for action on some of the points that you raised, and which members of Congress would you see taking the lead? Well, um, actually, I've been, I, I was speaking to um, st the State Department yesterday, right after the speech, um, and they were saying um, that we really do have to be concerned about appropriations. You know that the that there's the funding to do some of this stuff. Now, not everything requires funding, like getting Christians at the peace table does not require, um, or pressing the government for, uh, for property titles uh, to you know the Iraqi government to respect property titles. Um, that's not going to require funding, but there's going to be some uh, funding required for some of this. And as that evolves, um, maybe you know in a year, months from now. Um, that that committee those those committee members are going to be extremely important, but you can even you see even foreign affairs. This 
uh, Fortenberry bill that called it a genocide on Monday, which was, you know, built, you know, really pushed it over the edge, I think, for the administration, because it was totally bipartisan, 393 votes in favor, zero against. In an election year, that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> and um, that was started in the, in the Foreign Affairs Committee, which really doesn't have a whole lot of leverage, but it was, um, but actually Congressman Fortenberry is involved in, in the Appropriations Committee, so they probably knew that. And um, that's, so it's all interconnected. Really, there are many avenues. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, thank you. I just want to emphasize um, Nina's point about we all have a role. We have a copy of her most recent National Review piece outside that you all can take um, as a takeaway. Um, but I would encourage you, especially the young people who are here, to search online for the piece and post it to your Facebook. And this um, video will be posted on our website. And I know Claire Booth Luce also posts the videos on their website. So I would encourage you to look back and take a link of that and share it on your Facebook so that we can make an even wider um, audience aware. And for those people that are watching on C-SPAN, I would encourage you to check out um, Nina's page um, on the Hudson Institute website, which is hudson.org, and check the Daily Signal. We're writing about this. We've got a couple of videos interviewing uh, the priests that Nina mentioned. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, we, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. Nina will be following this uh, closely, along with our colleague here at Heritage, uh, James Phillips. So we have a few thank you gifts uh, for you. It's a bit of our tradition here, and I'll let Lauren uh, present first because uh, thank you. they have a, a traditional couple of items. That's right. Uh, Nina, thank you so much on behalf of the Claire Boothley's Policy Institute for speaking mm -hmm. today. Um, I'd like to present you with our great uh, mug you. with the phrase from Claire Boothley's, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> <laughs> Something you're probably very familiar <laughs> with. <laughs> I'd, like to, oh, there it is. Yeah. I'd like to give I'll you a it. copy of our <laughs> annual 2016 Great American Conservative Women Calendar, which oh, we have outside if anyone would like a copy. Excellent. And then finally, I'd like to give you our um, CBLPI tote bag. Great. Thank you Great. so much. Really thank, you. Really thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you.